0: If you haven't grabbed a booklet, uh, we're actually out of them, um, but we can always print more if we need to. It is available online uh, on the website, um, and there's a link um, in the emails we send out every week, so so you can can download the file. Uh, But it's uh, taking us through the book of Deuteronomy and talking about uh, a number of things that are in this book, Uh, just the layers and layers of things that are happening uh, in the book of deuteronomy and we're we're reading this book in preparation for resurrection sunday uh, deuteronomy is about blessings and curses the the theme of the book of the uh, book of deuteronomy is really um... here is what god expects um, and here is what happens when we fail and we've talked about the details of the background of this book um, it is essentially a series of sermons from uh... moses although he wouldn't call them sermons Um, but it presented to the people of Israel. But the book itself, you notice there's a lot that's different between Deuteronomy and Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. They cover a lot of the same material. There are pieces that are quoted almost verbatim between the two, but there's other material in. Now, that doesn't mean that somebody came along and just added a bunch of material in. But rather, uh, in ancient Israel, there were the records of Moses' messages. And this second law, which is the meeting of Deuteronomy, um, is taking some of the messages of Moses that aren't in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, some of the, the things, the instruction that they received, and bringing it to the forefront because of the problems that existed in the world at the time. Now, now I wouldn't take a bullet for this. Um, I, I believe the book itself, the words of Moses, date all the way back to Moses. They were written, they were recorded, and they were transmitted um, down Um, But the book as we have it, what's called the canonical form, probably written uh, around the reign of uh, King Hezekiah, which would have been in the 8th century BC, uh, and and it's framed, it's set a certain way. Um, this is very common in ancient texts. We have the same thing happens with Samuel King's. The books of first and Second Samuel first and Second Kings are reframed in first and second chronicles uh, centuries later. They take the same ideas, the same history, they add some pieces that pertain to the situation they're in at the moment. Um, and uh, this is not an uncommon thing that happens. So this morning we're going to be talking uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 13. We're going to be dealing with uh, the influences that distract us from God in Deuteronomy 13. So let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and we're going to get right into the text. Father, once again, as we come to your word, we come to the written word. We are reminded that this, um, this book, uh, words that are 3,000 plus years old, um, written down and recorded under the inspiration of the holy spirit speak to us today and are inspired for correction for instruction for reproof for doctrine and lord as we as we look at these words may we see not just words on a page but the living word jesus may we see the contrast between what he calls us to do and what we sometimes um wind up doing may we see the beauty of his call upon our lives and the truth uh, that he has called us to we pray this in his name by the holy spirit Amen. deuteronomy chapter 13 and verse 1 if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So shall you purge the evil from your midst. Now this chapter is going to deal with three distractions from the obedience of the Lord. Now when you see the word obey here in chapter 13... Um, it is the Hebrew word Shema. Listen, hear. All right? Obedience and active listening are the same thing in Hebrew. And Now when we think about hearing, we don't necessarily think about obeying. When we hear something, it's like, oh, that was interesting, you know, whatever. There's no activity to that. But here in this in Deuteronomy in particular, We are not simply describing listening as like you're listening to a podcast or listening to music, but listening actively, an active listening which when I hear, I act, I do. So that is what, when we read, uh, hear, O Israel, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Lord your God is one. That is not just, hey, you need to acknowledge this, but you need to act upon this. Uh, Actions flow from beliefs and beliefs flow from what we receive. And so uh, Deuteronomy is reminding us that it's not just about what we listen to passively, oh, I heard this thing or I heard that thing, but it is about action motivated by what we hear and what we experience. Now here we have false prophets. Now this is an interesting situation, and I I don't want to get super technical about this, but... um, This is one of those moments where we're introduced to something that doesn't make a whole lot of sense if we're reading Deuteronomy um, as if it happened, what's happening right now, what they're addressing is uh, the journey through the wilderness. There were no prophets when Moses was preaching. All right, now, he's called a prophet in Exodus. Uh, it said that uh, Aaron will be his prophet, but there wasn't like a group of prophets running around talking about stuff. Um, now, when we think of a prophet, we tend to think of somebody, we, we think of prophets, we think of you know, uh, foretellers, people that see the future. And that's not really what it means. Uh, the, the Hebrew word Navi, which is translated as prophet, it means one who calls, one who speaks. So, uh, for example, when a when a um, uh, when an Assyrian king was given his regnal name, his ruling name, um, and they have all these names, Ashurnasirpal, uh, Sennacherib, they've got all these crazy multisyllable names. Um, there was an official whose job was to call him by that name, um, and that that is in the Syrian, It's Navu. Um, which is uh, a cognate of the word navi. Uh, now, we don't really know where the word comes from. And and this is fascinating to me. We don't know where the word prophet comes from. There's actually an explanation of it in 1 Samuel. Um, and, and the play in 1 Samuel uh, is that that it's tied to the word gift, which I always thought was funny. Um, th- this idea that, oh, well, a prophet was somebody, it's a prophet who's somebody that... Um, that, that gives you something, right? and, and it's kind of an interesting play on the word, um, and, and the Hebrew word is related. Uh, it's not used, and this is, uh, again, interesting to me, this is not a title that is used in any culture that speaks a language similar to Hebrew. They do not have prophets with the cognate words here. Now, there are, there are words for prophets. Uh, the Akkadian word um, is ragamu. Um, and that's a, that's a prophet. That's a person who speaks, um, receives information from the gods, and he speaks. So there, there, are, there are people that do that thing, but they're not called Navi like the Hebrews. The Hebrews have their own title. And that title comes into use, really, in the northern kingdom of Israel with Elijah and Elisha. Now, there are some other prophets uh, along the way. Um, people that are called prophets. We actually have a moment where, in, again, in 1 Samuel, where, where we're told that uh, they were originally called seers, um, but we call them prophets today. So there was uh, some kind of other Hebrew word. And, and um, if you read the books of First and Second Kings, you will see that there is a competition between groups of prophets. Uh, there are prophets of Baal, there are prophets of Asherah. There are, there are prophets of the Canaanite religions, and then there's Elijah and Elisha, and a group called the Sons of the Prophets, Beni Navim, um, that that are competing with them. And there are these moments in First and Second Kings where kings will say, "Bring us the prophets, so they can tell us." Uh, what we need to know what do we do how do we do this and there's a couple of moments where uh, the the israelite king brings a bunch of prophets and then the judite king goes yeah 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 but do you have any prophets that speak the truth i mean there's this competition that's going on and this seems to be in focus here in deuteronomy 13 if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams comes and does what a prophet comes and gives you a message that's not what it says it says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder. And that sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. What does that tell us about false prophets? It tells us that false prophets can back up their things, the things that they say. We we live in a world where we tend to go well, you know. The test of everything is is you know, the test of truth is whether it, you know, does it does it come to pass? Now we can make fun about psychics, you know, and and um uh uh what are those things where they're in the newspaper and people uh, horoscopes, um where where you know people read the horoscope and it says something like you will encounter a person who will say something. Ooh. Oh. You know, uh, oh, I gotta look up what Leo is for this year. My 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 star sign is Leo. Um, there's a there's a great. How many of you guys remember? This has nothing to do with the message, but you remember um, Doctor Demento? Yeah. All right. Um, there, I remember a song I heard on Doctor Demento. My dad loved to listen to Doctor Demento. It's where I was introduced to Weird Al Yankovic and a bunch of songs. My wife hates when I sing. There's one about dead skunks in the middle of the road. Um, another one about dead puppies. There's uh, but the, there is there a song at one point, it's, it's, and I, I can't remember what, what, what it is, but at one point uh, in the song there's a line that says, she asked me what my sign was and I said neon. And I just think that is the funniest line in the world. Um, but, but you know, you look up your astrological sign and it says things like, oh, today is a good day for prosperity. You, you notice the, astro- the horoscopes never go, stay in bed pianos will be raining from the sky. There's never anything like that. Um, But uh, we're talking about false prophets. We're talking about prophets that have the credentials that people are listening to them. We're talking about people that are claiming to speak for God, and they have something that's backing them up. False prophets can do amazing things. Uh, they, can, they can do things that if you're not careful as you watch what they're doing, you go, wow, that must be valid. Um, now, I was, raised in, I was raised in Baptist circles and, and very conservative and all that stuff. But, um, but during my growth as, as, a, as a pastor, we encountered some things that many of you may have never heard about. Uh, the Toronto Blessing, uh, the Brownsville Revival. Um, These events where there were some extraordinary things happening in some churches now some of it was Crazy, I actually use the word kooky dukes Um, When you've got people that are blessed by the Holy Spirit And so they're roaring like lions sitting at the door roaring at people as they walk in you should probably have pause All right, you should probably go wait a second. What is happening here um now some of you have experienced these things and um, and I, I do think that we can we can swing to extremes we can go so radical that we can say the Holy Spirit never does anything in church which is wrong and then we can also say whatever we see happening in church is right and and both of those are uh, extremes and and there's some some odd things that happen okay um, and there are some great things that happen within it and so there's a mixture here but uh, my question, as I was growing in ministry, my question was not, how do we get rid of these people? My question was, is this the Holy Spirit? If so, we should be participating. The Bible calls us, tells us to test the spirits, to try them and see whether they're true. Not to simply reject things out of hand, but to test them, to try them, to to put them to the test bef- between, against Scripture and against authority and see whether they are true. Um, and so I went through about six months. I was, still, I was young. I was on staff at a church. I went through about six months where I read everything I could by the people that were involved in these movements, not, not critiques by, by other people. Um, I've read, uh, and I'm going to throw some names out here, and if, if, they're, if you're big with them, I don't mean to offend you, All right, but I've read several books by Benny Hinn. I've read several books um, by, by people involved in the Toronto Blessing. Uh, I've, read, I've watched videos of things that were going on in many of the churches that were there. And as I read those books, I, I, I constantly was not looking to disprove them. I just wanted to say, as I read through them, uh, does this align with Scripture? And there were some things that happened that I went, whoa. I don't want to get into too much of them, but one of the authors that I read talked about laying in bed one night. And suddenly the Holy Spirit came in under the doors of his bedroom and filled the room as if, as if it was full of smoke and pinned him to the ground, pinned him to the bed. He wasn't able to get up and called him to his ministry. And he immediately said, Oh, this was the Holy Spirit anointing me in the role of a prophet. And I remember, I didn't wear reading glasses back in the day, but I remember having that open on my desk And leaning back in my chair and going, now just wait a minute. Just hold up here. Are we reading Isaiah 6 and taking that to be normative for a prophet in the church? You know, for somebody being called into ministry. What is going on here? And do I see anywhere in Scripture where God holds people down in their beds, pins them to the ground? I started to get a little suspicious when that person then announced that they also had the anointing of Melchizedek, the anointing of David and the anointing of Jesus, that Jesus had anointed him to a special role in the church. Then I really started going, yeah, not so much. See testing false prophets, it takes time because they have signs and wonders involved. There's power behind false prophets. Um, there's extraordinary things that happen around them. And, and some of it, I mean, people again, people rush to, to decisions. Ah, oh, it's all demonic. I mean, I'm not sure that that's the case. All right? But there are false prophets in the church. But look at what the test is. Notice that as, as we're reading this text, it is not, when you find out about a false prophet, if somebody, you think that they're a false prophet, just go ahead and stone them. What is the question that is asked that determines whether someone is a false prophet or not? The false prophet does signs and wonders, and those signs and wonders come to pass. So those things are thought as confirmation. But then he says in verse 2, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. The stop point for a prophet, the real place where we have to have a yes or no vector, is what god are they chasing? And the question is not where a prophet starts. It's where he's headed. Because a lot of false prophets that exist in the world, a lot of people that have led people astray, started at the right place. They started in the local church. They started in a Bible study. Charles Taz Russell, who founded the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, that entire movement was started because Charles Taz Russell, the Bible study reader, uh, uh, Bible study leaders that he was involved in, could not answer his questions. And so he decided to become an authority to himself. And that's where a lot of his doctrine started, was in a Bible study where he was asking questions that people couldn't answer. And he decided he would answer them, that God would answer him, and he would get all of this stuff. And then he surrounded himself with some like minds, and we kind of get out from there. Uh, Joseph Smith, who started the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, would have benefited from a parent who just whacked him on the back of the head a few times. He was an 18-year-old kid. Whose parents were uh diviners. Literally, what they did was they went around finding water and searching for treasure and putting on funny sunglasses and sticking their heads in bags and using sticks to determine stuff. And I'm not making this up. That was how they were doing. He he took that kind of craziness and he married it. Um he lived in the Burnover District in upstate New York, second uh the second great revival or second great awakening, everything that was going on, and he married these two ideas. He came up with some kooky ideas. And by the time somebody thought to stop the guy, he had already started a movement that eventually had a larger military, a larger militia than the state of Illinois. And we're talking cannons and rifles and uniforms. And and there's a reason the Mormons got run to Utah. People were terrified that these guys were going to try to to lead a rebellion against the United States. The test of of a prophet is the test of where are you going? Where are you turned? And it's hard to distinguish when you're looking at a false prophet and you're you're standing close to them. How many of you shoot guns, bows and arrows, projectile weapons, anything like that? Not nearly enough. Okay. (laughs) You know that the further out you get from the target, the more more change happens on the projectile, all right? Because if you're standing three feet from something, Um, one, of the, one of the drills that I, I was working with in my martial arts class is, is, a, is a common draw for somebody in close combat, which is you put one hand on the person's chest, draw the weapon and put it right next to them and fire. Now you do that, the odds of you missing are pretty slim, right? You're within arm distance of them. But if I'm trying to hit somebody, I was just the other day watching a guy shooting at 2,176 yards with a, with a, uh, a rifle. Um, and they, they literally they had a camera on the target and they had, a, they had you know, all this stuff going on. There's like a team of like three or four people monitoring winds and speeds and all that stuff. And you could hear him shoot and then you would hear like like 20 seconds later the sound of it hitting the target. Because that thing's traveling forever. The slightest bit of deviation and it's going to be off by yards. All right? um, when you're standing close to something... And you're not, and you're trying to examine it, but you're super close, you don't see where that prophet is headed, you're not gonna see the variation that's gonna take you away from God. And that's why it's important that we take the time. We look at a false prophet and we see signs and wonders. We've got to step back, we've got to step back, we've got to step back, we've got to see where they're headed. Are they taking us? Is the prophet taking us toward the Lord our God, toward obedience of the scriptures? Or is the prophet taking us somewhere else? It's not where he starts. It's where he's headed. Now, the command for false prophets, of course, is nice and easy. Um, just put them to death. Easy solution. Uh, the, and, and now, I'm going I'm to go ahead and point out that Deuteronomy 13 sees a lot of realization in the, in the time of Elijah. And Elijah opposes the false prophets. of of Baal and Asherah. Deuteronomy 13 and 14 are actually extremely important in in studying that. There's a description in chapter 14 about these prophets cutting themselves uh, as part of their prophecy, which is something that the prophets of Baal do. Um, But he deals with those false prophets. He says, you put them to death, you get them out of the way, you purge the evil from your midst. Now, Uh, I'm not going to get into too much of this, but the reality is the theology. uh, Israel was able to do that because it was a sovereign state. The church does not execute people. So if anybody's asking, we are not doing that. All right. But let's get to verse 8. If your brother, the son of your mother, or the son or your daughter, or your son or your daughter, or the wife you embrace... Um, and remember, this is a polygamous organiz- society, so there's the wife you embrace and the wife you don't like, all right? Um, the wife you embrace, um, or your friend who is as your own soul, so your best friend, entices you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the people who are around you, whether near you or far from you, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him. Uh, you remember when Jesus said, think not that I... He says, "He says um, I've come to bring the sword to divide father from child, all right? He makes that mention... That, He's relying on Deuteronomy chapter 13 for that. He says, You shall not yield to them. You shall kill them. Your hand shall be the first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. So the first example that he deals with is prophets, right? Well, the prophet is a public speaker. I mean, the, in the church, the prophet, prophet, the role of the prophet is the role of the pastor, right? Um, it's the role of the, per, the teacher of scripture. Um, it's not about foretelling the future. It's about telling what God has said. But here we have a different temptation, and I would argue a more dangerous one. And that is the person that entices you in private, The biggest threat to our faith is not the atheists making TV shows. I have yet to meet someone who abandoned their faith because they watched a Ricky Gervais movie. Um, I have have yet to meet a Christian who watched Jon Stewart and went, Oh, well, I should abandon my faith. The people that I know that have wandered from the faith, they have wandered... Because of the people who entice them secretly In those intimate situations At this point in my life as a pastor The number of marriages and lives I have seen disintegrate Because of the private enticements Far outnumber the number of people I've met Who followed false prophets And what do I mean by private enticements? I, d- I don't mean, you know, I have candy Come to the dark side, you know, we have cookies But um, I don't mean something like that. I mean something small. Um, I, I, I mean these, these little moments where, where the, the person that you, you are closest to starts to steer you a little off. I, I, I just dealt with a, a story about this, a pastor that I knew uh, online uh, years ago um, whose, whose wife got into um first she got into to fitness and and she she got into just you know being a personal trainer and th- that's good that's great i mean my wife wants to be a personal trainer she she really looks forward to making people do sit-ups and stuff like that um but uh you know she got into that and then she started to get into uh, kind of this uh the more and i hate to use the dated term but it's kind of the dated term that new age spiritual stuff she started to get into well you know it's all about you know uh uh th- these kind of Um, zen ideas and 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 starting to to kind of draw from other wells of of knowledge and and then from there then then they started to she started to ask questions about this whole uh, bible thing and about this god thing and of course her husband tried to help he tried to be an answer he tried to uh, but over time she started to wear down his resolve about these things and if we're being perfectly honest, his knowledge of the scriptures wasn't terribly deep. It was somewhat superficial. He had not really had any training. He had just been kind of picked by um, the previous pastor to be the pastor, given a quick training of a couple months, and made the pastor. And and it started to. And at first, it was kind of like, I don't know how we're going to deal with this. And then uh, and then I I, I kind of lost touch. And then another pastor friend of ours just messaged me the other day. Did you see about so and so? And I went on his page, his Facebook page, and he was talking about how he doesn't consider himself a Christian because, uh, you know, we don't really need this kind of Bible thing and, and why do we have to be so exclusive and anything that takes you to the truth is true and, and, and he just kind of kind of being really, I'm going to use a, a term, namby-pamby, um, uh, kind of wishy-washy. Um, not timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly, that's solid. but um, But, you know, they were just kind of like... That's a Doctor Who reference for those who don't understand. But he just, it was like, well, you know what, it's just, you know. And it wasn't even like, let's everybody get along. It was just kind of this nebulous, um, you know, well, you know, my it's more spirituality than religion. I'm not really interested in the church and the Bible, you know, and pastors telling people what to do. And, you know, and just kind of, and and, and he just, and over the course of several years, had just very slowly been led astray. Um. Did you know that it is actually your job to maintain your personal orthodoxy? As a Christian, you actually have a responsibility to make sure that you're staying true to the scriptures. A personal responsibility. It is not your husband or wife's job to keep you true. It is not the pastor's job to keep you true. Hopefully I help. Hopefully I'm not detrimental in that particular regard. But it's your job. It's your job as a believer as a follower of Jesus, it's your job to follow Jesus. You say, oh, I'm not a follower of Jesus, I'm a Christian. Same thing. Disciple, follower of Jesus, they all, they're all the same thing. It's this idea of Jesus is leading, we're following him, we're making sure that we're not getting distracted off the path, we're staying with him. Those private temptations are deadly, they're dangerous. Now, this passage is the basis of the statement that's made in 1 Kings about Solomon who marries many foreign wives and they construct their, uh, their temples and before too long he's off sacrificing to other gods. You say, well, I would never go sacrifice to another god. I would never do that. Really. Maybe that's true. But in our modern world, I mean, we could talk about other gods, We could talk about the God of success. You say, well, my job never gets in the way of church. I'm always at church. And and understand, I'm not not picking on anybody. I'm just giving you examples, abstract examples. My job never gets in the way. I'm always at church. But does your job get in the way of your primary responsibility, which is to care for your family? Does, um, Does the false God of comfort take the place of the role of discipleship, of maintaining our orthodoxy, of staying true? Uh, Do we have things in our lives that we have let into our life thinking, this won't affect me, and then we cease to evaluate whether it affects us? Uh, Some of you know about the show Alone the stupid survival show all right hey listen they finally in later seasons admitted that those people are not nearly as alone as they pretend to be, that they're, they're getting regular med checks and things like that. The first couple of seasons, they acted like these people were in the wilderness by themselves. No one, they were, they were just going to die in the woods. That was the way it goes. You're just going to get footage of their death. You find out they've got monitors on them and they're, they're constantly being, uh, being checked. And also, anyway, the, the alone, one of the funniest things that people ever do in alone is they build boats. And so they always make a boat by, like, building a wooden frame and then doing something that I learned doesn't work to make a boat when I was, like, eight years old. Wrap it in a tarp. They build a wooden frame, and they put a tarp around it, and they go, this will be great. What's the difference between a boat made of a tarp floating and a boat made of a tarp sinking? One hole. Tarps are not self-healing. And it's not like they have patch kits. They're like, well, I just throw this tarp. I'm like, so you just put your 200-pound body inside of a wooden frame that you made with twine and twigs and a tarp. And then every single one of them, oh, there's some water coming in. Of course there is. It's a tarp. I've never owned a tarp that didn't have a hole in it. I swear they have holes in them when you open them. Like, they're, they're a pre-hole to make sure something leaks on whatever you cover with the tarp. Um, you know, we, we, we let little things into our lives, and then we don't monitor them. We don't moderate whether things influence us or not. And then down the road when we check it, we realize just how influenced we've been. It's private enticements. And then the third one. If you hear in one of your cities, verse 12, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of the city. The word worthless fellows is beni belial. Um, it's the word where "son of Belial" comes from, but it's actually a play on words. Um, the god of the Canaanites is called Baal, um, and and unworthiness is Belial. So you just stick that Y in there, and it's a play on words that Baal, the god, is wor- un- is worthless. He's he's unworthy. But um, these these sons of uh, these un- certain un unworthless fellows or or sons of Belial, sons of emptiness have gone out from among you, have drawn away the inhabitants of your city saying let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently and behold if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you you shall surely put the inhabitants of the city to the sword devoted to destruction all who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword you shall gather all its spoils in the midst of its open square and burn the city and all it spoils with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. There's a whole sermon in there about destroying the abomination as an offering to God. I won't get into that. It shall be a heap forever, uh, literally a dung pile, a trash dump. It shall not be built again. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you as you swore to your father's. So we talked about a public prophet leading us astray, the private enticement, and then there's the popular movement. The popular movement. Um, there's nothing wrong with exploring movements and ideas, but we need to be aware that there, there are worthless people who will take advantage of you for their own advantage and call it Christianity. They will sell you a product that is the miracle cure, snake oil, and they will say, this is what you need. And once they get a few people buying into it, suddenly everybody buys into it. Something catches on somewhere, and then it is everywhere, and you can't get away from it. Sometimes they're good ideas at the beginning. Sometimes they're terrible ideas at the beginning. Uh, I do not go into Christian bookstores. My wife can explain to you what happens when I go into a Christian bookstore. I get so irritated by movements. I am not a part of the Christian movement of the day. I'm a part of the church of Jesus Christ. When I was being trained, coming up in ministry, uh, the movement was the emerging church what were we emerging from i have a lot of questions about that word and then the emerging church became the emerging church so the emergent church the emerging church became the emergent church and so you you hear the little shift that goes from emerging to emergent all right, we've now come out of the place, and it's funny. By the as this movement was moving, the guy who actually framed the to- who actually coined the phrase "emerging church," Dan Kimball, by the time it became a popular movement, he had already abandoned it and said this was a stupid idea. But nobody paid any attention, and suddenly we were letting all kinds of post-modernity, all kinds of deconstructionist literary theory, um, come into the church as if it was theology. And, and people were challenging, uh, challenging established ideas, and that, that's not in and of itself wrong. But then the church was becoming about the experience. Church was becoming about the, the connection. Spirituality was becoming nebulous. But it was selling like hotcakes. So people were buying up everything they could get on this topic of the emerging church. And everybody wanted to be on the next crescendo of whatever God was doing. Um, this, this thing has happened over and over and over again. I could go through all the movements I've lived through the purpose driven movement, the third wave movement, the, uh, the, the, uh, the apostolic movement, the emerging church. Uh, and then I stopped paying attention. I really did. When I, I got a book one time by a guy, well intentioned guy, and the book was called The Organic Church. And I went, I'm done. I'm done. I'm like, if we got to walk around slapping an organic sticker and and pricing up the carrots because they look funky, all right, I'm done. I can't, I can't do this anymore. I was like, I'm not interested in a church that has an adjective on it. I just want to be the church. Something catches on somewhere, and the reality it does not add anything to the work of the gospel. That's what worthlessness is. These unworthy fellows. They're empty. You append something to the church, but it's meaningless. It doesn't actually do anything. And worse, it may be destructive. And and we talk about all the time about these popular movements. What is the question about the movement? Does it move us toward God or not? Does it keep us on the path that we were called to or not? Verse 18, if you obey, that's Shema, if you actively listen to the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his commandments that I am commanding you today, and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. All right, he says, if you don't let this stick to you, the Lord will... Turn away from the fierce of his anger. And all I want you to do is obey the voice of the Lord your God. Now, there's nothing wrong with plan- trying things. There's not, nothing wrong with innovation. There's nothing wrong with approaching things uh, with new eyes, fresh eyes. But if we look at it and it vectors us away from what we are called to do, from the act of obedience to the simple commandments of the Lord our God, We're called to purge it from us. If you hear, now I want you to listen to this. If you can hear the voice of the Lord your God, in verse 18, he will keep you in line. But if you are listening for the voice of God filtered through uh, public prophets, private uh, enticements, popular movements if that's where you're hearing the voice of god instead of hearing the voice of god from the scriptures and taking the responsibility that you own as a follower of christ to follow him and hear his voice and obey his voice you will get led astray you will and it doesn't matter who the person is that you're relying upon to tell you what the Bible says. They have to be tested against your against the Scriptures in your, your situation. When, Apostle, when the Apostle Paul preaches in Berea, what do the Bereans do? Interesting. We'll go check the Bible and get back to you. We want to make sure that what you're saying is correct. We want to make sure that it lines up. I mean, if Paul shows up, you would think he's got it all down, right? And yet they're like, we want to check the scriptures here. We want, to, we want to make sure that it lines up. If you hear the voice of the Lord your God. You want to avoid abomination. You want to avoid uh, getting lost in, in the Christian industrial complex. You want, to, you want to avoid things that are going to distract from your growth as a follower of Christ, first and foremost, you have a responsibility to know the Scriptures, to study them, to journey with them. We talked about it a few weeks ago. Avoid the pitfalls and the misunderstandings of the Scripture. But you go after prophets. You you follow the private temptations. You get caught up in the popular movements. Don't be surprised if you get lost. Just don't be surprised if you don't get lost. Not all of you. You may not even lose most of what it means for you to be a follower of Christ. But there'll be a part of you that'll be lost. I, I grew up in the King James Only movement. Uh, now, my dad did not believe this, um, but people that we hung out with believed that um, when God... And I'm putting this this way When God decided the English speaking people Needed his word He assembled a bunch of baby baptizing Anglicans They translated the Bible Actually they copied 70% of it from William Tyndale um, Translated the Bible And it became the word of God For the English speaking people That's how they describe it The word of God for the English speaking people I grew up in that movement I know a lot of wonderful men and women who are part of that movement but they have followed a false prophet that, that is not in scripture That doesn't mean that they're going to lose the scriptures it doesn't mean that they don't understand the scriptures although a lot of times they misunderstand the scriptures because 1600s english does not mean what 21st century english means good wonderful people who unfortunately they've allowed a little bit of false prophecy into their hearts. Um, my wife will tell you that at one point um, we were associated with a church. It was not a church we were serving at, where they had to throw out all of their pew Bibles because in Second Timothy chapter three, um, verse sixteen, it says uh, that a man of God may be thoroughly equipped. They threw that out. They wanted the one that said thoroughly equipped. That thoroughly was a violation of Scripture had to be throughly. And I went, is this a cartoon? Like, seriously? Through all the pew Bibles because of one word. Because they wanted a specific... By the way, the word that they wanted is a typo. It should be thoroughly. Um, You allow a little bit of that in. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when some people who allow the voice of a false prophet... They get so distracted and so lost. Doesn't mean that they're not. Doesn't mean that there aren't good people who are following that idea. But we have a personal responsibility to test everything against the voice of the Lord our God. I'm gonna finish with one story. I had one son, one person one time come up to me and they said, they said she said to me, um, I have a word of the Lord for you. I went, oh boy. Now, usually that just means an encouragement. That usually just means somebody's going to come and they're just going to encourage you. They just, they feel impressed and they want to. And the person said to me, I have, a, I have a word of the Lord for you. I said, All right, go ahead. Shoot. I'm ready. And, um, and they said, You have been called to be an apostle. And I'm like, There's got to be somebody better maybe the was there a wrong number I mean what is going on and and i didn't I wasn't even going to get into the debate of it right? but I'm not called to be an apostle, not the way the modern bible they 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 want they want to create this whole apostolic office where you're overseeing lots of local churches, and this is you you're called into an apostolic role person was well intentioned they were well meaning they probably had. Uh, uh, signs and wonders to back up what they had to say, some some kind of special message they had gotten, but that wasn 't the Word of God for me. I already knew what I was called to be I, I already had had not only not only been impressed by myself, you know like people talk about how do you get called into the ministry y- you you start to feel that there 's an alignment of your passions and, and your skills with the role of the ministry, and then you go. If you want to be in the Christian ministry, you go to the men and women who you respect in the church and you ask them if they see the Holy Spirit's gift in you. And if they do, then you go get the training that's required to enact those gifts, and then you get that recognized by the church. The church of Jesus Christ then gathers together and says, We recognize the Holy Spirit's work in this person. I'm sorry. In comparison to the work of the Spirit through the church, the people of God, and the Word of God, one person telling me that I needed to be an apostle, that's a vector that's going to take me down the wrong road. Now, this happened a long time ago. Not anybody that we know or associated with, is even they're not even around anymore. But you ha- we have to be discerning about what voices we allow to influence us in our journey As Christians. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, help us to hear your voice. Above all other voices. The glory that you alone deserve. Our pure and full devotion. We want that focused on you. Help us to filter out the false voices and whatever uh, whatever arena they're in and to keep our eyes, our hearts on You, our feet moving towards You and our hands doing what You've called us to do. Help us to hear You, that You are the One and the Only. We pray all of this through Jesus Christ our Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My brothers and sisters, go in peace.